Hey, hey, hey! Welcome to the Waters Waveland podcast, episode one hundred and ninety-one. I am Wei Shen, your host, and we have Tony here, staring at me through video right now. How's it going, Wei Shen? Good, good. Thank you. It's a beautiful Thursday morning. Uh, unfortunately, we're all stuck inside. There you go. Yeah, it's just taunting us. <laughs> <laughs> beautiful weather outside. Just yeah. Not out, and it's it's like twenty degrees at the moment, which is, uh, I'm I'm gonna say I'm gonna guess it's around sixty five Fahrenheit, but I'm not too sure. I'm sixty five is my favorite temperature. Sixty five, uh, home sounds here Celsius, uh, to Fahrenheit is so. What did you say? It's twenty degrees. Yes. Sixty eight degrees. Oh, close enough. <laughs> Beautiful. That that is a perfect day right there. Yeah. Yep. And the sun is out. So Listen, you guys still have restaurants and things open over there. So I say just go and live it up, you know, roll the dice. <laughs> don't don't listen to me, anybody. That is uh, clearly. Roll the dice, roll the dice. Huh? <laughs> so this week um, on the podcast, you have Richard uh, Bloor from KY3P on, right? Um, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So he's uh, the CEO, uh, CEO of KY3P, um, KY3P. Uh, 3P is a company of IHS Market, a subsidiary of IHS Market, and so we have. It was it was a really good discussion. Um, they put out. They have this um, this electronic survey platform called um, Scent. Sorry, I lost it there for a second. I almost called it Team because on the pod anyway. Uh, <laughs> it's called Scent. Um, and so when big events happen in the market. It's kind of like this due diligence, this vendor due diligence um, survey that goes out. Um, they have a, a team of humans that kind of put together a questionnaire. So in this case, for COVID nineteen, it was I, I believe it was six questions, and so he discusses what's involved in that questionnaire. Um, he, uh, Richard talks about some of the common pain points, concerns that respondents were feeding back to him. And then there were, you know, it was, it was it was a good discussion around um, some cybersecurity issues that firms are realizing they have to face now. Um, you know, things around automation projects becoming more important as we move forward um, into the future. How fintech, you know, and smaller firms are going to respond to this. So it was a good wide ranging discussion, definitely worth a listen. And mm. you know, and, and so yeah, I, I definitely worth a listen. I think. You know, we've been producing a lot of uh, articles on Waters technology about coronavirus, COVID-19. Um, you know, one thing that kind of jumps to mind right now before we get to Richard's talk is uh, we published a story. Um, it was written by our uh, friends over at Risk, and so we also published it on Waters um, called COVID-19 Tumult is Testing AI Fund Returns. And it basically it's a it's a good deep dive into how machine learning models are performing um, during this process. So I, I don't know, you, you had a chance to read it, right, uh, Wei Shen? Uh, yeah. So, some takeaways. Yeah, I, I thought it was quite interesting here that it says here, you know, um, Risk.net has identified machine learning based strategies that are up in the single digits. But one AI powered volatility trading strategy has been up 19% year to date. And 
And then, you know, a risk parity fund that uses machine learning to make allocations perform has performed three times better than conventional strategies um, or conventional versions of that particular strategy. So I think it's, it's quite um, an interesting time to see how AI and machine learning models uh, that are used in funds, uh, fund allocations or, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, funds per se. Um, yeah, how, how they're performing right now. Um, and I, I quite like this quote from uh, Julian Turk from BNP Paribas. It says, like, in the debate between the traditionalists and AI, right now it looks like the AI bots are winning. But I think, um, I mean, this article that our, our friends at risk have uh, published, which is also on our site, um, you know, gives uh, quite a balanced view of how um, things have, um, I, I guess, gone well for these AI funds and and and, and, and sorry, <laughs> and ML models. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you know, this is also kind of like a, a testing ground for them. Um, you know, what what do you think? Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, so they talk with ten um, funds that use uh, quant funds that use. Um, uh, that use ML models significantly in their trading strategies. And while they have done well, one of the interesting takeaways that I found was they did very well, especially in the in the buildup. So that January, February timeframe before, you know, kind of, uh, you know, Western nations really fully understood the impact as to what was unfolding, the global impact that was unfolding. Um, they did a really good job on picking up on those whispers and adjusting for them. Um, but, uh, and I'm just reading now from the article, the picture changed once panic selling began in Europe after March 9th, arguably pointing to a weakness of machine learning. Um, the algorithms can be confounded when events diverge from those in the historical data that they learn from. Um, and that led, uh, Marcus Lopez de Prado, um, founder of True Positive Technologies and Cornell University professor, uh, machine learning, our models are not heroes. And I also like this one. Um, so this was uh, Darko Matovsky. Hopefully I'm getting that name right. Uh, co-founder at Causal Lens, a provider of uh, causal AI systems to hedge funds. Current machine learning is very good at uh, perfectly learning the past, but not so good at figuring out which structural conditions are likely to survive in the future. So this is an article. And we'll, we'll be writing more of these, not just around machine learning, but as you said, this is going to, it's a good time as a proving ground for some of these emerging technologies that we've been talking about. Can blockchain platforms really handle massive, massive volatility, massive, massive volumes? Can machine learning really point to unique insights that, you know, that the human eye can't do, that kind of human uh, machine augmentation idea? Um, do all which alternative data sets are truly mm. valuable in something like this. So those are merging technologies, those emerging data sets that everybody likes to talk about into the run-up of this when the market was going great. Fantastic. I think that we're going to kind of start to see where there are cracks in some of these theories that we had and where there's actual use cases. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I guess maybe then that, that also kind of leads to uh, the other idea around this is finance, fintech startups. Yep. Um, we wrote an article about alternative data providers, the actual providers themselves, 
as VC funding dries up, as all that investment dollars dry up, as firms are going to be maybe a little bit more hesitant to try and incorporate an experimental data set, we're going to see a lot of alternative data providers. Um, I, I, in theory, there could be a lot of alternative data providers that could uh, suffer and go under. Similarly, there are financial technology providers, startups that are still in the seed ABC funding stages that, you know, if that cash flow dries up and they really start to face challenges there, that could force them to uh, uh, merger, to, to merge with another a competitor. Um, or maybe they just go under and that stuff gets auctioned sometimes. Sometimes the patents get sold around the technology. So I think that there's going to be this idea of a lot of technology, cutting edge, innovative technology that could become available in the near future that at the beginning of 2020 was just not going to be on the market. So, I mean, those are kind of some of the takeaways I took there. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree because like, as these technologies are, I mean, they now have a chance to basically prove themselves, right? Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, um, and as you mentioned, you know, they could, it is the reality that they will likely run into cash flow problems. And, you know, once they do that, especially if they're in the early startup phase, you know, um, this could just mean that they can't afford to operate anymore. Yeah. And therefore, it could lead to, you know, the big, the, the bigger fish, you know, in the sea, you know, swallowing them, swallowing yep. them up, um, and and that could be a good thing for for those large institutions. Um, so yeah, I think we will be seeing a lot of consolidation and um, M and A activity happening in, the, in this in this space. Um, unfortunately, well, what, or fortunately, yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it well, it's going to be yeah. It, it uh, listen, we do not, you know, I it's going to suck for those that really had a good idea they came to market either at the wrong time or they just didn't have enough time to build up that that tipping point of customer base to to ride yeah. them out through a tough time it doesn't it's not going to mean that everybody that fails didn't have a good product it was just a bad time right and yeah but you know you just yeah it's just the business world man it's just the real world and with every challenge with every bad thing there are going to be opportunities created for others and yes. that's what people do need to start thinking about now is what is going to be available and so once this does kind of dry out i completely agree with you i think the mma is going to really pick up in uh, the kind of fintech space um and you know, so this is actually, I don't know, maybe it's a good transition now. This is actually something we talked a little bit, uh, Richard and I, uh, about that. So I don't know, uh, maybe now's a good time to kick it over to him. Yep. Okay. And uh, I guess without further ado, let's just move on to um, Tony's conversation with Richard Bloor of KY3P. Till next week. Okay. And now I am joined by uh, Richard Bloor, the CEO of KY3P, which is a company of IHS Market. Uh, Richard, thanks so much for joining us today. No problem. Thanks for having me, Tony. So today we're going to have a discussion around um, some of the some of the the things that um, Richard's group uh, KY3P and specific uh, this uh, survey that they put out called Scent. He'll be able to explain more of what it is and how it works. But we're going to look about uh, some of the challenges that uh, firms are facing when it comes to um, 
uh, kind of KY, uh, know your customer, uh, AML kind of stuff. And more importantly, for times like these around vendor due diligence, uh, which is becoming an increasingly uh, more challenging topic. Before we kind of get into that though, Richard, um, you joined in late 2019, if I'm not mistaken, you had spent 10 years at Goldman Sachs, is that correct? That's correct. Yes, Tony, that's right. Yeah. So I was, um, so my career has been uh, pretty much always within the supply chain, procurement, third party risk space. So prior to KY3P, as you say, I was at Goldman Sachs, where I um, did, a, did a number of roles um, culminating in, in leading um, their global supply chain organization, which included procurement, third party risk. Uh, and then prior to that, I'd spent time um, in fast moving consumer. So at Coca-Cola enterprises in their logistics and supply chain function. And then prior to that in aerospace, so much yeah. more sort of direct um, uh, procurement for uh, for manufacturing. Yeah, I, I got I got to ask you because I was looking at your LinkedIn before we started talking and I was laughing because, you know, OK, Goldman Sachs, that makes sense. Go to IHS market, capital markets. And I'm like looking gold, uh, Coca-Cola, international aero engines, uh, Rolls Royce. So I, I got to ask, how did you stumble into the capital markets then, I guess? Yeah, <laughs> good, good, good. Good question. So it was all it, it, it was all based around 2008, 2009. So with the financial crisis and when the global regulators um, turned their attention on, you know, what had been some of the causes around the, um, the financial crisis, um, some of the incremental oversight they wanted to do. One of the areas they focused on was outsourcing and the, the obligations on organizations to make sure when they choose to have a third party execute something for them, they've really got to make sure that they, they are overseeing it um, in the same way, in the same manner, to the same level that they would if they were doing it themselves. And ultimately, the core principle of that regulation, which is you can outsource the activity, not outsource, not outsource the risk. So if you actually look across the financial services industry, we, we talk about ourselves as the class of 2010. So there were actually a whole number of people who were brought in from manufacturing, you know, pharmaceuticals, um, automotive, aerospace, FMCG, or industries that have traditionally had a, you know, a longer history of, of stepping and into and building out supply chain management, third party risk functions. Uh, and the banks just didn't have that deep experience. So they went on a recruiting drive. So I got a call um, from someone who said, hey, would you be interested in going to work for a, a global investment bank? I thought, yeah, let's go have the conversation. And that's how I, uh, that's how I made the move. Uh, that is interesting. So, you know, kind of bookend, you know, going through one crisis now after the last big crisis there, yeah. uh, 2008. And so we'll get a little bit into that. Maybe maybe for our audience that isn't as familiar with um, KY3P. And then also there is this, this uh, first maybe that, but then talk a little bit about uh, Sense and when it was created and for what purposes. Sure. Yeah. And actually that the, the the, the core and founding principles of, of KY3P, Know Your Third Party, um, links very well to the to the SENT capability. So SENT stands for Significant Event Notification and Tracking. Um, and really, the, the core capability for KY3P is to help financial services institutions initially, but we're, we're broadening that to, to other industry sectors, um, to 
deal with a lot of common problems that people have with trying to execute due diligence and manage their third party risk in a con consistent, transparent, and importantly, in an efficient way. So if you think about um, what does the ecosystem look like in financial services? So there's probably, let's say, upward of 20,000 organizations all out there um, executing and conducting business all of them increasingly rely on a complicated, extensive web of third parties within their global supply chains to deliver those services to them. You add in there um, a, a whole lot of increasing regulatory scrutiny and expectations and testing, and everybody all of a sudden wants to execute due diligence on each other, talk to each other all the time. Everyone, everyone is each other's client, everyone is each other's vendor, everyone is each other's counterparty. Um, and so you end up with this sort of um, bow wave, an exponential amount of due diligence and question sets that end up trying to be executed. So you have 20,000 financial services organizations trying to execute you know, due diligence on 20,000 um, plus vendors that operate in this space. And you can quickly see that that multiplies up exponentially. So the, the heart of, of, of KY3P was established by a number of those financial services institutions um, to tackle that problem. So it was all about how can we bring some consistency to the types of questions that we want to ask our, our vendors? How can we build a, uh, a utility platform that lets the vendors easily upload and respond to those questions and transact and have that conversation? Um, and then how can we do that? efficiently. So that's that was the, the, the core of KY3P. So KY3P today is um, is really, that's the core of its um, offering. We also have a workflow module, uh, which sits at the front end, which lets people consistently um, uh, deploy their third party risk policies and, and program. Uh, and it has a, a risk calculator in, calculator in there that will um, look at and, and calculate consistently the level of risk associated with each um, vendor engagement. And then we also have a, a managed service capability around assessments where we will execute an assessment on an organization's behalf. So that's the, the KY3P offering. Um, but if you think about extending that to the SENT um, uh, functionality, which sits within the KY3P suite of tools, that's exactly you know, the, the principles that Scent was built on. So going way back, um, if you remember things like Heartbleed and Ghost, um, some of the vulnerabilities that were, you know, maybe seven or eight years ago, um, there was clearly a need um, to help our clients and help the, um, the financial services institutions just go out and say, hey, vendors, there is this issue. How have you tackled it? How have you responded, it, responded to it instead of everyone sending out 15 different versions of 20 spreadsheets to every single vendor? So the send functionality really is sort of the embodiment of the principles that, that the broader KY3P solution is set up to solve. Okay. And then, you know, specific for this uh, COVID outbreak, um, so walk us through a little bit just so, our, just so people have a frame of reference for later what we're going to be talking about, but how many questions were sent out about this and can give some examples of what those questions were? Yeah. Yeah. And so interestingly, and and, and I'm sure many people listening to this will, will recognize it, but trying to get a whole bunch of organizations to agree on what questions to ask is a challenge in itself. <laughs> so, so 
so our philosophy is always less is more, right? So let's let's agree on a, a quality set of questions that allow you to triage through your data and identify where there are issues you need to address. So this isn't like a hundred question, um, a questionnaire. This is six questions. Um, and we validated those questions um, through, we have what's called the, our SENT committee. So this is a, uh, a group of our investors and, and design partners who come together when these events happen and we work with them to, to get a single set of questions that they can all agree on, which we did in this case. So the types of questions that are in there, um, so first of all, it, it will it will open up um, a question that will ask, are you impacted by COVID-19? Right? So there's an initial triage question that says, instead of making everyone answer everything, first of all, we need to establish whether you are impacted or your operations are impacted. Did, did anybody say no? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, not not that I can think of. I think everyone exactly. This you know one of the one of the unique things about COVID nineteen is the breadth of its impact, right? So yeah. yeah, so I think just about everybody responded that yes, in some way it does it does it does impact them or affect them, and then it talks about some of the more standard things around. Okay, what is your um, organization's um, approach? How have you fixed it? Do you have a corporate policy or corporate statement that you want to include in the response? Um, you know, are you switching? a proportion of your staff to work from home. If you are, what incremental current controls do you have in place to, to address that? Um, and then, you know, we, we have a question that talks about how sustainable is it on a, on, in, the long, in the long term? Because I think one thing certainly that um, is, again, different in COVID than, than other um, events that I've been involved in is the, t the length of time is, is indeterminate. So we just don't know. So I think what, what we have seen, and this may you know, start to talk about when we see some of the themes, what we have seen is organizations almost look taking a three-pronged approach, a short-term, okay, I need to know urgently with who are my critical vendors, are they dealing with this? You know, a more medium-term approach around, you know, starting to get to some of the send questions that I just talked about. And then I think, you know, many will switch to a longer term, which is well, what is my supply chain actually going to look like in six to nine months when we finally find out how many of the, our vendors are going to be left standing at the end of it. Okay. And you know, maybe walk me through that. So build on that just a little bit more. Did you notice any in getting these responses or maybe even just talking with uh, clients just one-on-one, -on -one, yeah. but did you notice any common um, pain points or concerns, common concerns among yeah. uh, respondents and clients? Yeah, sure. So I think at number one in terms of um, concerns and where I think um, we're going to see issues is around cash flow um, and the economic shock. So, I think certainly you look across the the the, the vendor base, and um, those vendors that I think will be successful and those where people will be less anxious about are either they have access, they have good strong cash flow, they have access, or within a country where the government has has decided to step in and provide you know um, support for those industries. Um, and then third, it's those that are, um, you know, have a good diverse business set where maybe one part of it hasn't been overly impacted where another part has. So I think that when we talk to our clients, definitely there, a lot of them are zeroing in on all right, the financial stability. How do we continue to, to, to focus on that? I think the other areas <clears throat> are access to people. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, many, many organizations in particular, you know, in, in the professional services based in financial services, their suppliers are giving them uh, a service which is reliant on either having people in a particular location or having people who are accessible um, to, a, to a particular service level agreement. And so I think that we've definitely seen you know, a concern there around both on the client side and on the vendor side where the clients on the one hand are very keen for the vendors to, to, to do whatever they need to do to adapt to continue to provide the service. So this may be you know, BCP sites being activated, working from home being activated, people switching to laptops, for example, where maybe they would be um, on a more, on a more um, secure infrastructure, which is great. But then on the other side, which is you know part of the send questionnaire goes into, all right, so how are you doing that, but maintaining your level of control? So that that is definitely one of the um, the areas of anxiety or, or pain points, and I think those vendors that that will be successful are those that can demonstrate that operational flexibility, but also can demonstrate that they continue to 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 be able to enforce those control standards that um, that the clients are uh, clients are needing. Um, so I think they're for, from based on what we're seeing, they're the sort of the key concerns or pain points. I think in terms of the the process itself. The um, the willingness of the vendors to respond, I think, is also uh, been very very important. Um, the you know if you think if you're a vendor and you think about you're trying to manage and navigate through the the COVID nineteen situation, um, the last thing you need is to be hit with seventy four separate requests for information that are asking for the same thing in a very very slightly different way. And so there was in the in the initial weeks there was definitely an overwhelming, um, for the vendors anyway, an overwhelming request for all this information. So having the vendors come on board and being able to respond once, upload the data once and then permission to many people has been massively helpful. So I think we've seen we've seen a much better response rate um, for, the, for the COVID question set than maybe we would see um, for, for a less sort of impactful incident. Yeah. You know, and, and then maybe to, to touch on some of the things that you're talking about, maybe there are going to be broader trends that are going to play out and that, that firms are going to really have to start thinking about going forward. Um, you know, one thing that we saw even before this uh, pandemic, you know, uh, began was an increased focus by regulators in uh, Europe and U.S. around vendor due diligence um, and their need to make sure that these third-party platforms that you know the banks and the asset managers exchanges are becoming increasingly reliant on that they are resilient. Um, at the same time, many might argue that in the capital market space, those banks and asset managers that they th th those that have performed best uh, transition to a remote. Th those that have responded to kind of working remotely. Um, the ones that have responded best are those who have already embraced automation and cloud SaaS delivered solutions like that. You know, I, I had one um, uh, hedge fund CTO tell me um, that they're going to be looking to invest more in automation projects and automating middle back office uh, things that are largely manual because um, the, the, the person said uh, with people all over the place, it did create some unforeseen challenges that we're going to need to look to address. And, you know, so they were talking about RPA, stuff like that. But in your opinion, when it comes to automation projects, do you anticipate there being a change in, I guess, uh, urgency, I guess, uh, when it comes to various automation projects inside of banks and asset managers to streamline some of these largely manual processes? Yeah, completely. So I think, <clears throat> and, and interestingly, that is, that is something that we're already 
um, we're already picking up a little bit. So I think you're going to see a couple of trends around that. So the first the first one is um, I think everyone's going to take a bit of a deep breath and, and, and start to look across the portfolio of services and vendors that they rely on. And they're going to do two or three things. I think first of all, they're going to say, all right, so which, which of the vendors are critical but also strategic because I think they're two slightly different things. Like day one is who, who's critical, who could bring the business down. Day two is, all right, who, who are important to my business strategy going forward? And I think people are going to want to really protect those vendors and make sure that they're working as closely as they can with them, you know, and send a cash flow. Can they help with payment terms, et cetera? I think the second thing that we're going to see is, and this is getting to, to, to your point and question around automation, is those those that will survive and will do well are absolutely those that have either already invested in uh, reducing their dependence on, on having people in, uh, engaged in the process and needing to be in physical locations um, because that's been disrupted by the COVID process. So I think going forward, people are really going to look for which organizations and even how can they make their own organization pandemic proof? Because the old, you know, the old, the old world, well, it was only six weeks ago, but the old BCP world was very much disaster recovery. This is going to, you know, this is going to last a week to three weeks, or this is very specific to a location that we can no longer use because it's burnt down or there's a hurricane. Whereas what COVID has done is it's leveled all of that. And it said, no, 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 you need to make your processes resilient and not reliant on a, a, you know, a single type of location or a single type of skill set within a workforce. And that applies within organizations and also across, you know, outsource providers. I think the, the, the other trend, um, that we may see is, you know, over the past four years, we've seen an increasing diversification of supply chain. So we have seen somewhat of a move away from large um, outsource providers or large platform providers who are sort of dominating the market over the last four years. We've seen that, um, you know, um, uh, change a little bit with much more um, smaller, innovative fintech organizations coming into the space, which I think has driven a lot of improvement, a lot of innovation. One of the impacts of COVID may be that those smaller organizations are going to be less resilient and they're going to have less you know, ability to withstand some of the economic shocks. So you may see some of those disappearing or you may see some of them becoming you know, attractive acquisition targets. So you may see a bit of a move back to bigger larger more resilient um uh vendors and and, and a and a you know re reduction in the diversification of supply chains that's one thing you may see as, as a as a as a longer term trend sure yeah you know it's funny because we we recently had a brainstorming session uh with just the reporters on on uh here at water technology and just kind of kind of come up with what some of the longer tail fallout of this might be and you kind of talked about cash flow, especially for fintech startups, stuff like that. And it's going to be a tough environment um, for these firms, especially when those that are still in the funding stages that are as VC kind of funding kind of dries up. You know, it's going to there's going to be a lot more like you're saying, like really innovative, interesting tech that actually might come into the market more cheaply now because yeah. these companies just aren't going to be able to withstand the economic shock of this. Um, so there's certainly that longer tail. I, I think that certainly firms are going to have to be thinking about um, best of breed, but how can we, if, if a company fails or an alternative data provider, say, just goes out of business under night, how can we fail fast 
um, rather than that old way of thinking of, all right, we're going to bring saying it's going to become core competency, kind of like that. I think that that's certainly one of the fallouts that, that we're going to likely see unfold over the next couple years, I would say. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think the, you know, I would almost, I would almost ask and encourage people, um, and certainly this is what we're talking to our clients about, is, you know, you need to rethink the way that you ask those BCP resilient questions. So, as I said in the past, they were pretty short-term focused. Who's my critical vendor? If they went pop, um, how can I continue my uh, my particular operation? I think you've got to be, you've got to switch to a much more proactive mode and think longer term. So, I would be looking for those smaller fintech organizations that are really delivering a competitive advantage for me you know, or, or access to that data. And I would stay really close to them and just really try and understand, all right, is there anything that we can do together and partner together to secure the future of that organization? Because if we don't, they're going to, um, I think they're going to disappear, which, which is not good in, you know, in any supply chain, a reduction in the, in the amount of innovation and competition doesn't, doesn't end up in a good place for anybody. Yeah. And then, you know, one of the other things I think, and you, you touched on this in the beginning of the conversation, but as more more firms become reliant on automation, technology, third-party solution, things like that, as that's being introduced more, one of the things that I think firms are, be, especially as they've gone to a remote workforce, is um, their cybersecurity footprint. Um, you know, had one bank uh, CTO tell me, uh, he was saying, uh, I'm finding now our biggest concern is security with many of our bankers using new networks and devices to do work. Our attack surface has increased a lot. And though we plan for remote security, we're still seeing some holes in our strategy, which we're working on. Um, I think that every single firm right now is that's that's now the the hidden the, the ticking time bomb in some ways is were these third party resources, how vulnerable, how secure were they from a cybersecurity perspective? Um, do you see there being what do you kind of see the concern around cybersecurity being uh, when it comes to third-party resiliency? And do you think that this does create a, an increased push by regulators to make sure that there is more due diligence around um, around a vendor's uh, 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 cyber resiliency? Yeah, so, so cyber resilience um has you know was 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 really where the third party risk effort within financial services started and it still is i would say one of the absolute core pillars of of that capability um and so you know if you look at if you look at um people who want to go after data what do they do so if they can't attack the actual banks they'll go after their supply chain all the way from you know their their law firms and the and, and and the legal vendors that they use all the way through to even some of the travel vendors you know anywhere into and some of the real estate vendors if they can access and get an understanding of their floor plans etc so anywhere where they think they can get access to data they can go after so certainly the cyber footprint and cyber security in the supply chain is is paramount and critical and 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 100% where regulators are um, are focused i think vendors um, in general have come a long way even in my, you know, the last 10 years that I've been involved in the financial services industry, um, <clears throat> certainly the the awareness and the willingness to work collectively to improve the control standards has come a long way. But there's, you know, there's there's, there's still there's still a long way to go. I think COVID, um, what COVID does is in switching, and I talked a little bit about it, in switching control environments, and this is where it's going to be interesting to see whether there will be a, a, a significant 
breach or incident off the back of this. But as people switch from you know, tried and tested infrastructure and locations and they switch to work from home or maybe they're using a different type of infrastructure, <clears throat> those, those changes are only as good as the weakest link in that um, in that new operational setup. Right? So it will be um, it will be interesting to see when we look back on this as to whether, you know, were people able to take advantage of any weaknesses um, or was there actually a significant breach or an incident, which when you track back, the root cause was um, somebody changing their operating environment or operating model to, to continue to provide services during COVID. So this is, this will just continue to shine a light on this space. Um, and yeah, it's it, it remains one of the, the key focus areas for the regulators. Okay. And as you mentioned in the beginning, you know, with 2008, it, it caused banks to have a whole uh, rethink of the supply chain and hence, you know, them going out and looking for outside industry talent. Um, if you were having kind of brainstorming session, both internally um, at uh, uh, KY3P or with clients, you know, we talked about cash flow and fintech challenges there. We talked about cybersecurity, some challenges there. We talked about um, automation projects, increasing industry. Is there anything else kind of just that you think that maybe we haven't hit on, but that firms are going to have to start to at least start having these internal discussion now because there will be a longer term effect after everything does eventually shake out, that there will be longer term uh, uh, um results uh, stemming from this that firms are going to have to start to at least think about now and then yeah. respond to once it all shakes out. Yeah, it, it's, it's, the, it's the million dollar question, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> go and make yourself a million dollars right now. What's the go. big go idea? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so I, I, big ideas are difficult to come by at the moment. But I think if I had to, if I was talking to clients right now and, and, and thinking this through, um, definitely one of the ones which I've already talked about is stay incredibly close to your not just critical vendors but strategic ones that you think could be at risk because you you will struggle to replace them right so fly forward see what you think your supply chain is going to look like in 12 months i think the other bit is make start now build pandemic planning into your bcp and resilience plans with vendors so the old i think the old stuff is 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 fine but it does not go and will not cope with this kind of event going forward so i think get get pandemic proof planning done um, and get it done soon i would also really just take a take a step back and look at your overall supply chain so it may be that <clears throat> a, a a completely globalized supply chain um is may not be the answer for tomorrow right so you may want to break off certain sections of it so you know, if you think you have critical systems within your your buildings for example that you now cannot access the spare parts to because they come from halfway around the world have a think about is there something you know local um in country where you need to build maybe some bonded stock or work with a with a with an integrator who can hold that for you so i think we might see a little bit of a retrenching in some of those global supply chains to to bring a bit more um a bit more local um, aspects to it i think the final trend we, we may well see and i talked about it in terms of the you know the reduction in the diversity of the supply chain but i do think people will retreat to safety so I think people will go and seek out those larger organizations who were able to demonstrate resilience through the, the COVID-19 um, uh, impact and really sort of have a long, hard look at their, at, at their own internal capabilities and say, hey, do you know what, if we'd have had access to vendor X 
our internal process would have worked much better. So, you know, maybe outsourcing, which we'd been somewhat resistant to do, maybe outsourcing can actually be the solution to, to increasing resilience. So I think you'll see people, um, people looking at those kind of opportunities, which with it will bring the, you know, increased um, regulatory scrutiny as people start to look to outsource even more. And then before I let you go, um, at uh, KY3P, um, beyond just uh, the Scent platform that we've been talking about, but are there any, obviously there's there's maybe going to be a backlog of some tech upgrades and enhancements that just kind of will have to wait until everybody's back in the office together, but um, any kind of previews you give for the audience as to anything you guys are working on or going to be looking to roll out uh, here later in the year? Sure. So, so there's probably... Um, two things that we are we're very excited about. So, so first is within. I talked about our workflow um, platform. So we are just about to, um, or we've released the initial batch of it, but we're about to to, to release a much more um, in-depth module around performance management of vendors. So KPI tracking, SLA tracking, um, which especially at times like this incredibly useful to make sure you are focused and managing and, and not seeing any downturn in, in in your vendor service level. So that's one bit which we're excited about. I think the other bit which is directly you know, relevant for COVID is um, <clears throat> we've um, we've launched uh, a number of new assessments that we execute on behalf of, of clients, of vendors. Um, and so we now are able to offer um, what we call an express assessment, which is you know, very, it's quick to do. It is based predominantly on publicly available information, which we consolidate. Um, sorry about that. No we can tweak it. Yeah. <laughs> Great. So yeah, so we so we have um, an express assessment which um, is very quick to execute. It works predominantly on publicly available information, and will give you a very quick look um, at a vendor's um, financial health, a vendor's internal control frameworks, you know, any certifications that, that vendor has. So it gives you very quickly some reassurance, all the way through to um, a, a detailed on-site assessment that we can execute. And that one, I think, is is particularly interesting because we're working to figure out whether we can create create um, almost a virtual on-site. So can we get our remote and desktop offering augmented with other pieces of reference data that can um, uh, replicate as much as possible the level of detail you will get with an on-site? Because we all know at the moment, on-sites are not possible because of the lockdown. So that is something that we're um, we're talking to a whole bunch of clients about. And, and, and you know, I think that's going to be um, very beneficial and helpful for people that still need to execute that due diligence cycle, but simply just cannot because they can't get on-site to vendors. All right. Well, Richard, uh, thanks. This is a fun conversation and uh, good luck going forward on uh, this uh, this new world that we're in. Great. No, thank you very much, Tony. Appreciate the time.